0: My name is Marisha Pessel, and I'll be reading from my debut novel, Special Topics and Calamity Physics. My book is a literary coming of age uh, thriller and uh, a story of a father and daughter. Blue Van Meer is the narrator of the novel. She is a 17-year-old freshman in Harvard and is suffering from insomnia and obviously has a great weight on her shoulders, so she decides to write down her story. She has spent her childhood traveling all across America following her father, who's a visiting lecturer of political science at various obscure universities all across America. And finally, for her senior year of high school, they move to a small mountain town in North Carolina. And it's there that she's befriended by a mysterious group of high school students called the Blue Bloods. And as she's taken into their clan, a series of strange events begin to happen around her, and she resolves to play sleuth. Here, Blue reflects on her dashing, peripatetic professor father. Dad picked up women the way certain wool pants can't help but pick up lint. For years, I had a nickname for them, though I feel a little guilty using it now. June Bugs. See Fig Eater Beetle, Ordinary Insects, Volume 24. There was Mona Latrovsky, the actress from Chicago, with wide-set eyes and dark hair on her arms, who liked to shout, Gareth, you're a fool, with her back to him. Dad's cue to run over to her, turn her around, and see the look of bitter longing on her face. Only Dad never turned her around to see the bitter longing. Instead, he stared at her back as if it was an abstract painting. Then he went into the kitchen for a glass of bourbon. There was Connie Madison Parker, whose perfume hung in the air like a battered piñata. There was Zula Pierce of O'Kush, New Mexico, a black woman who was taller than he was. So whenever Dad kissed her, she had to bend down, as if peeking through a peephole to see who was ringing her bell. She started out calling me Blue Honey, which, like her relationship with Dad, slowly began to erode, becoming Blue Honey and then blue ultimately ending with Baloney. Baloney had it in for me from the very beginning, she screamed. Dad's romances could last anywhere between a platypus egg incubation, 19 to 21 days, and a squirrel pregnancy, 24 to 45 days. I admit sometimes I hated them, especially the ones teeming with ladies' tips, how-tos, and ways to improve, like the ones like Connie Madison Parker, who muscled her way into my bathroom and chastised me for hiding my merchandise. Steve Mollusks, Encyclopedia of Living Things, 4th edition connie madison parker age 36 on merchandise you got to put your goods on display babe otherwise not only will the boys ignore you and trust me on this my sister's flat as you we're talking the great plains of east texas no landmarks one day you'll look down and have no wares at all what'll you do then sometimes june bugs weren't too terrible some of the sweeter, more docile ones, like poor, droopy-eyed Tally Myerson, I actually felt sorry for. Because even though Dad made no attempt to hide the fact they were as temporary as scotch tape, most were blind to his indifference. See Bassett Hound, Dictionary of Dogs, Volume 1. Perhaps the June bug understood Dad had felt that way about all the others, but armed with three decades' worth of ladies' home journal editorials and expertise in such publications as Getting Him to the Altar and The Chill Factor, How Not to Give a Damn and Leave Him Wanting More as well as her own personal history of soured relationships, most of them believed, with the sort of unyielding insistence associated with religious fanatics, that when under the spell of her burnt-sugar aura, Dad wouldn't feel that way about her. Within a few fun-filled dates, Dad would learn how intoxicating she was in the kitchen, what an old sport she was in the bedroom, how enjoyable during carpools. And so it always came as a complete surprise when Dad turned out the lights, swatted her ruthlessly off his screen, and subsequently drenched his entire porch in raid pest control. Dad and I were like the trade winds blowing through town, bringing dry weather wherever we went. Sometimes the June bugs tried to stop us, foolishly believing they could reroute a global wind and permanently impact the world's weather system. Two days before we were scheduled to move to Harpsburg, Connecticut, Jessie Rose Rubiman of Newton, Texas, heiress to the Rubiman carpeting franchise, announced to Dad she was pregnant with his child. She tearfully demanded she move with us to Harpsburg, or Dad would have to pay a one-time initiation fee of $100,000 with an ongoing direct debit of 10000 per month for the next 18 years. Dad didn't panic. When it came to such matters, he prided himself with having the air of a maitre d' in a restaurant with an exorbitant wine list, pre-ordered souffle, and a roving cheese cart. He calmly asked for confirmation with blood. As it turned out, Jessie wasn't pregnant. She had an exotic strain of stomach flu, which she'd eagerly confused with morning sickness. While we prepared for Harpsburg, now a week behind schedule, Jesse performed sad, sobbing monologues into our answering machine. The day we left, Dad found an envelope on the porch in front of the front door. He tried to hide it from me. Our last utilities bill, he said, because he'd rather die than show me the hormonal ravings of a madwoman which he himself had inspired. Six hours later, however, somewhere in Missouri, I stole the letter from the glove compartment when he stopped at a gas station to buy Tums. Dad found love letters from a June bug as monumental as an extraction of aluminum, but for me, it was like coming across a vein of gold and quartz. Nowhere in the world was a nugget of emotion more absolute. I still have my collection, which tallies 17. I include below an excerpt from Jesse's four-page ode to Gareth. "'You mean the very world to me, and I'd go to the ends of the earth for you if you asked me. "'You didn't ask me, though, and I will accept that as a friend. "'I will miss you. I'm sorry about that baby thing. "'I hope we keep in touch and that you will consider me a good friend in the future "'who you can rely on in thickness and thin.' In lieu of yesterday's phone call, I am sorry I called you a pig. Gareth, all I ask is to remember me, not as I have been over the past couple days, but as that happy woman you met in the parking lot of Kmart. Peace be to you forevermore. Most of the time, though, despite the occasional buzzing sounds reverberating through a quiet evening, it was always Dad and me, Mm, the way it was always George and Martha, Butch and Sundance, Fred and Ginger, Mary and Percy Bees. On your average Friday night in Roman, New Jersey, you wouldn't find me in the darkened corner of the parking lot of Sunset Cinemas with the tanned Sporto with shiny legs puffing on American spirits waiting for the spoiled pretender in his father's car so we could speed down Atlantic Avenue, scale the chain-link fence surrounding long-out-of-business African safari mini-golf and drink lukewarm Budweiser on the taddy astroturf of Hole 10." Nor would you find me in the back of Burger King holding sweaty hands with the kid whose mouthful of braces made him look simian, or at a sleepover with the goody two-shoes whose uptight parents, Ted and Sue, wished to prevent her ascent into adulthood as if it were the mumps, and certainly not with the cools or the trendies. You'd find me with Dad. We'd be in a rented two-bedroom house on an unremarkable street lined with bird mail boxes and oak trees. We'd be eating overcooked spaghetti covered in the sawdust of Parmesan cheese, either reading books, grading papers, or watching such classics as North by Northwest or Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, after which, when I was finished with the dishes— And only if he'd sunk into a bourbon mood. Dad could be entreated to perform his impression of Marlon Brando as Vito Corleone. Sometimes, if he was feeling especially inspired, he'd even stick a piece of paper towel into his gums to recreate Vito's mature bulldog look. Dad always pretended I was Michael. "'Barzini will move against you first. He'll set up a meeting with someone you absolutely trust, guaranteeing your safety. And at that meeting, you'll be assassinated. It's an old habit. I've spent my entire life trying not to be careless. Dad said careless regretfully and stared at his shoes. Women and children can be careless, but not men. Now listen. Dad raised his eyebrows and stared at me. The second excerpt that I shall be reading occurs later in the novel when Blue has an encounter with uh, one of these spurned June bugs, which she detailed in the previous passage. A week or two later, on a Tuesday evening, I was sprawled across my bed, trudging through the battlefields of Henry V for AP English when I heard a car. Immediately I went to the window and... Peering through the curtains, watched a white sedan slink down the driveway like a punished animal, coming to a timid halt by the front door. Dad wasn't home. He'd left for an hour before to go have dinner at Tijuana, a Mexican restaurant, with Professor Arnie Sanderson, who taught intro to drama and history of the world theater. A sad young man, Dad said, with funny little moles all over his face like enduring chicken pox. Dad said he wouldn't be home until 11 o'clock. The headlights switched off. The engine died like with a bloated belch. After a moment of stillness, the driver's door opened and a pillar-like white leg fell out of the car, then another. This entrance of hers, at first glance, seemed to be an attempt to act out some red carpet fantasy. Yet when the woman came into full view, I realized it was nothing but the sheer challenge of maneuvering in what she wore. A tight white jacket, doing its best to bind her waist. A white skirt-like plastic wrap around a bouquet of stocky flowers. White stockings, exceedingly high white heels. She was a giant cookie dipped in icing. The woman closed the door and, somewhat hilariously, set about trying to lock the doors, having a hard time finding the keyhole in the dark, then the correct key. Adjusting her skirt, a movement akin to twisting a pillowcase around a pillow, she turned and tried not to make a sound as she boosted herself up onto our porch, her swollen hair a citrus yellow color shuddering over her head like a loose lampshade. She didn't ring the bell, but stood for a moment at the door, an index finger in her front teeth, the actor about to enter suddenly uncertain of his first line. She shaded her eyes, bent to the left, and looked in the window of our dining room. I knew who she was, of course. There'd been a series of anonymous phone calls just prior to our departure for Paris. My hello was met with silence, then the hiccup of hanging up and another less than a week ago. Swarms of June bugs before her had shown up like this, out of the blue, in as many moods, conditions, and colors as a box of Crayola crayons. Broken-hearted, burnt umber, seriously pissed Cerulean, etc. They all had to see Dad again, wanted to pin him down, corner, cajole, in Zula Pierce's case, maim him, make a final appeal. They approach this doomed confrontation with the weightiness of appearing in federal court, tucking their hair behind their ears, sporting no-nonsense suits, pumps, perfume, and conservative brass earrings. Junebug Jenna Parks even toted in an unwieldy leather briefcase for her final showdown, which she primly rested on her knees, opened with the clichéd bite of all briefcase openings, and, not wasting any time, returned to Dad a bar napkin on which he'd written in happier days, "'A woman's face with nature's own hand painted, Hast thou the master-mistress of my passion?' They always made sure to add sexy punctuation to this expert appearance, crimson mouth, complex lingerie under a faintly transparent blouse, to tempt Dad, hint at what he was missing. If he was home, he ushered them into the den in the manner of a cardiologist about to deliver bad news to a heart patient. Before closing the door, however, he'd ask me, "'Dad, the all-knowing doctor, me, the flighty nurse, "'to prepare a tray of Earl Grey tea. "'Cream and sugar,' he'd say with a wink, "'a suggestion that made an unlikely smile "'sprout on the June bug's bleak face. "'After I put out on the kettle, "'I'd returned to the closed door "'in order to eavesdrop on her deposition. "'No, she couldn't eat, couldn't sleep, "'couldn't touch or even look at another man.' "'Not even Pierce Brosnan, and I used to think he was wonderful,' "'Connie Madison Parker confessed. "'Dad would speak, something muffled, inaudible, "'and then the door would open and the June Bug emerged from the courtroom. "'Her blouse was untucked, her hair full of static, "'and, in the most disastrous part of this metamorphosis, "'her face before so meticulously made up, now a Rorschach test.' She fled to her car, a little frown between her eyebrows like pleated fabric, and then she drove away in her Acura, or Dodge Neon, as Dad, all resigned and weary sighs, settled comfortably into his reading chair with the Earl Grey tea I'd fixed for him, as he'd planned all along, to tackle another lecture on third-world mediation, another tome on principles of revolt. It was always a tiny detail that made me feel guilty, the dirty gross-grain bow barely hanging on to the front of Lorraine Connolly's left high heel, or Willa Johnson's ruby triangle of polyester blazer, caught in the car door, it flapped in terror as she sped down the driveway, not bothering to check for oncoming traffic before making the left onto Sandpiper Circle. Not that I hoped Dad would permanently keep one. It was an irksome thought, watching on the waterfront with a woman who smelled like apricot potpourri from a restaurant bathroom. Dad and I rewinding our favorite scene, the glove scene, ten, sometimes twelve times, as the Junebug crossed and uncrossed her legs in huffy annoyance. Or listening to Dad explain his latest lecture concepts, transformationism, Starbucksization, to a woman who did forceful, newscaster, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, even when she didn't understand a word. Still, I couldn't help but feel ashamed when they cried. "'an empathy I wasn't entirely sure they deserved. "'Apart from a few flat questions about boys or my mother, "'none of them ever talked to me, eyeing me as if I were a few grams of plutonium, "'unsure if I was radioactive or benign. "'Obviously, it wasn't fantastic what Dad was doing, "'making perfectly realistic women act like, "'well, as if they were determined to resurrect "'old storylines of guiding light. "'But I did wonder if it was entirely his fault.' Dad never lied about the fact he'd already logged his one great love, and everyone knew one was the maximum of great loves a person could stumble upon in a lifetime, though some gluttonous people refused to accept it, mistakenly muttering on about seconds and thirds. Everyone was quick to hate the heartbreaker, the Casanova... The Libertine, completely overlooking the fact that some Libertines were completely candid about what they wanted, excitement between lectures. And if it was also appalling, why did everyone keep flying onto their porches? Why didn't they spiral off into the summer night, expiring with peace and poise in the soft shadows of the tulip trees? If Dad wasn't home when a June bug unexpectedly materialized, I was to follow his specific instructions. Under no circumstances should I allow her into the house. Smile and tell her to hold on to that fabulous human quality which, unfortunately, people no longer have the slightest sense of. Pride. No, there was never anything wrong with Mr. Darcy. You may also elucidate that the saying is true. It will all feel better in the morning. And if she still insists, which is likely, some of them have dispositions of pit bulls with bones, you'll have to let drop the word police. That's all you need to say, police, and with any luck she'll fly from the house, if my prayers are answered, from our lives, like a chaste soul out of hell. Now I was tiptoeing downstairs— more than a little nervous. It wasn't easy being Dad's human resource. And just as I reached the front door, she rang the bell. I looked through the peephole, but she turned to look over her shoulder at the yard. With a deep breath, I switched on the porch light and opened the door. Howdy, she said. I froze. Standing in front of me was Eva Brewster, Evita Peron. Nice to see you, she said. Where is he? I couldn't speak. She grimaced, burps, ha, and pushed both the door and me to the side as she walked inside. Gareth, honey, I'm home, she shouted. Her face upturned as if expecting Dad to materialize from the ceiling. I was so shocked I could only stand and stare. Kitty, I realized, had been a pet name. "'which she doubtlessly had at some point in her life "'and resurrected so they'd have a secret. "'I should have known, at the very least, thought about it. "'They'd had them before. "'Sherry Piths had been Fuzz. "'Cassie Bermondsey had been both Lil and Squirts. "'Zula Pierce had been Midnight Magic.' Dad found it humorous when they had catchy names that tripped off the tongue, and his smile when saying this name she probably mistook for love, or if not love, some seed of caring, which would eventually grow into the massive vine of affection. It might be a nickname her father gave her when she was six, or her secret Hollywood name, the name she should have been called, the one that would have been her passport to the Paramount lot. You're going to speak? Where is he? "'At dinner,' I said, swallowing, with a, a colleague. "'Uh-huh. Which one?' "'Professor Arnie Sanderson?' "'Right. Sure.' She made another sulky noise, crossed her arm so her jacket winced, and continued down the hall to the library. Dimly I followed. She sauntered over to Dad's legal pads neatly stacked on the wooden table by the bookshelves. She grabbed one, ruffling the pages. "'Miss Brewster?' "'Eva.' Eva, I took a few steps closer. "'She was approximately six inches taller than me and sturdy as a silo. Uh, "'I'm sorry, I don't know if you should be here. I have homework.' She threw her head back and laughed. "'See Shark Death Cry, Birds and Beasts, Bard, 1973, page 244.' "'Oh, come on,' she said, looking at me, flinging the legal pad to the floor. "'One of these days you're going to have to lighten up. "'Though with him, yeah, I got you. It's a tall order. "'I'm sure I'm not the only one he keeps in a constant state of terror.' "'She moved past me out of the library, down the hall toward the kitchen, "'affecting the air of a real estate agent, inspecting the wallpaper, rugs, door jams, and ventilation "'in order to determine a price the market could bear.' I understood now. She was drunk. But she was a concealed drunk. She'd vigorously zipped up most of the drunkenness so it was scarcely visible, only in her eyes, which weren't red but swollen, and a little bit sluggish when they blinked. Also in her walk, which was slow and forced, as if she had to organize every step, for she'd topple like a for-sale sign. Every now and then, too, a word jammed in her mouth and began to slide back into her throat until she said something else, and it coughed out. Just taking a teensy-weensy look around, she muttered, trailing her chubby manicured hand along the kitchen counter. She pressed play on the answering machine. You have no new messages, and squinted at Junebug Dorothea Dreiser's ugly cross-stitch quotations, hanging in rows along the wall by the telephone. Love thy neighbor, to thine own self be true. You knew about me, didn't you? She asked. I nodded. Because he was weird that way. All the secrets and lies. Remove one from the ceiling and the whole thing collapses on top of you, nearly kills you. He lies about everything, even nice to see you and take care. She tilted her head, thinking, Any idea how you get to be a man like that? What happened to him? Did his mother drop him on his head? Was he the nerd who wore an ugly brace on his leg and everyone beat him to a pulp at lunchtime? She was opening the door leading down to Dad's study. If you could shed some light on that, it'd be great, because I, for one, am pretty confounded. Miss Brewster keeps me awake at night.' She was clunking down the stairs. Uh, "'I think my dad would prefer that you wait up here.' She ignored me, walking the rest of the way down. I heard her fumble with the switch to the overhead lights, then yank the chain of Dad's green desk lamp. I hurried after her. When I entered the study, she was, as I both expected and feared, inspecting the six butterfly and moth cases.' Her nose was almost touching the glass of the third case from the window, and a small cloud had formed over the female Eucloran megera, the verdant sphinx moth. It wasn't her fault she was drawn to them. They were the most riveting things in the room. Not that Lepidoptera displayed in Riker cases was an unusual thing. Let's make a deal Lupine told Dad and me they were a dime a dozen at estate sales and could be purchased on the street in New York City for 40 big ones. But many of these specimens were exotics, rarely seen outside of a textbook. Apart from the three Cassius blues, which looked quite dreary in comparison to the Paris peacock just next to them, three wan orphans standing beside Rita Hayworth. My mother had purchased the others from butterfly farms in South America, Africa, and Asia, all of them supposedly humane, allowing the insects a full life and natural death before collection. You should have heard her on the phone drilling them about the living conditions, Dad said. You'd have thought we were adopting a child. The Carnes Birdwing. inches, the Madagascan Sunset Moth, 3.4 inches, were so luminescent they looked as if they weren't real, but crafted by Nicholas and Alexandra's legendary toy maker, Sasha Lurin Kuznetsov. With the most dazzling materials at his fingertips, velvet silks, furs, he could craft chinchilla teddy bears, 24-carat dollhouses in his sleep. See Imperial Indulgence, Lipnikov, 1965. What is this stuff? asked Eva, moving to examine the fourth box jutting out her chin. Just some bugs. I was standing right behind her. Gray lint balls pimpled the sides of her white wool jacket. A strand of her sulfur orange hair swerved into a question mark on her left shoulder. If it If we'd been in a film noir, it would have been the moment I jammed a pistol into her back through the pocket of my trench coat and said, through teeth, make a funny move and I'll blow you from here to next Tuesday. I don't like this kind of thing, she said. Gives me the creeps. How'd you meet my dad? I asked as cheerfully as I could. She turned around, narrowing her eyes. They really were an incredible color the softest blue-violet in all the world. So pure, it actually seemed cruel to make it witness the scene. He didn't tell you? she asked suspiciously. I nodded. I think he did, I just can't remember. She stepped away from the cases and bent over Dad's desk to scrutinize his desk calendar, stuck in May 1998, covered with his illegible scrawl. I'm the type of person who stays professional, she said. A lot of the other teachers don't. Some father comes by, tell them he likes their teaching style, and suddenly they're in the throes of some cheap romance. And I tell them over and over, you're meeting at lunch hours, you're driving by his house in the middle of the night. You really think it's going to turn into something cute? Then your dad comes along. He wasn't fooling anyone. The average woman, sure, but me, I knew he was a fraud. "'That's the funny thing. I knew, but I didn't know, you know what I mean? "'Because he also had such a heart. "'I've never been one of those romantic types, but suddenly I thought I could save him. (laughs) "'Only you can't save a fraud. "'With her long fingernails painted the pink of kitten noses, "'she was rifling through Dad's mug of pens. "'She picked one out, his favorite, actually, an 18-carat gold Mont Blanc.' A goodbye gift from Amy Pinto, one present from a Junebug he'd actually liked. Eva turned it in her fingers, sniffing it like a cigar. She put it in her purse. You can't take that, I said, horrified. If you don't win Hollywood squares, you still get a consolation prize. I couldn't breathe. Maybe you'd be more comfortable in the living room, I suggested. He'll be home. I looked at my watch, and to my panic it was only 9.30, in a... Few minutes. I can make you some tea. I think we have some Whitman's chocolates. Tea, huh? How civilized. Tea, that's something he would say. She threw me a look. You should watch that, you know, because sooner or later we all turn into our parents. Poof. She slumped down into Dad's office chair, pulled open a drawer, and started to page through the legal pads. Won't know what hit interrelationships between domestic and international politics from greek si- city-states to the present day. She frowned. You get any of this crap? I had a good time with the guy, but mostly I thought what he said was a load of dung. Quantitative methods, the role of external powers and peacekeeping processes. Ms. Brewster? Yeah. What are your plans? Making it up as I go along. "'Where'd you move from, anyway?' "'He was always fuzzy about it, fuzzy about a lot of things. "'I don't mean to be rude, but I think I might have to call the police.' "'She threw the legal pads back in the drawer, hard, and looked at me. "'If her eyes had been buses, I'd have been run over. "'If they'd been guns, I'd have been shot down dead. "'I found myself wondering, ridiculously, "'if perhaps she had a gun on her and perhaps she wasn't afraid to use it. "'You really think that's a good idea?' she asked. No, I admitted. She cleared her throat. Poor Mirtha Grazley, you know, crazy as a dog struck by lightning, but pretty organized when it comes to that admissions office. Poor Mirtha came back to school on Monday, last term. Found her place, not as she'd left it, but with a couple of moved chairs and messy seat cushions, a liter of eggnog gone. It also looked like someone had lost her cookies in the bathroom. Not pretty. I know it wasn't a professional job because the vandal left her shoes behind. Black, size 9, Dolce & Gabbana. Not a lot of kids can afford the hoity-toity stuff, so I narrow it down to the big donors kids, Atlanta types who let their kids run around in the Mercedes. I cross-reference that with the kids who went to the dance and come up with a list of suspects that surprisingly ain't all that long. "'But I have a conscience, you know. "'I'm not one of those people who gets a kick out of wrecking some kid's future. "'It'd be sad. "'From what I hear, the Whitestone girl has enough problems. "'Might not graduate.' "'I couldn't speak for a moment. "'The hum of the house was audible. "'As a child... Some of our house hums were so loud, I used to think an invisible glee club had gathered in the walls, wearing burgundy choir robes, mouths open in earnest o's, chanting all night and all day. Why were you calling out my name, I managed to ask. At the dance, she looked surprised. You heard me? I nodded. I thought I saw you two running toward Loomis. She made an odd umph sound and shrugged. "'Just wanted to chew the fat. "'Talk about your dad, kind of like we're doing now. "'Not that there's much to say anymore. "'Jig is up. I know who he is. "'Thinks he's God, but really he's just a small... "'I thought she was going to stop there. "'At the searing declaration, he's just a small... "'But then she ended it, her voice soft. "'A small little man.' "'She was silent, crossing her arms, "'tipping back in Dad's office chair. "'Even though Dad himself had warned me "'one should never take notice of the words "'that barged out of an irate person's mouth, "'I still hated what she said. "'I noticed, too, it was the cruelest thing to say about a person, "'that they were small. "'I was only consoled by the fact that, in truth, "'all humans were small when one considered them "'in the grand scheme of things, "'put them side by side with time, the universe.' Even Shakespeare was small, and Van Gogh. Leonard Bernstein, too. Who is she? Eva demanded suddenly. She should have been triumphant, having made all those groundbreaking assertions about Dad, but there was a discernible sprain in her voice. I waited for her to continue, but she didn't. I'm not sure what you mean. You don't have to tell me who she is, but I'd appreciate it. She was obviously referring to Dad's new girlfriend, but he didn't have one, at least not to my knowledge. "'I don't think he's seeing anyone, but I could ask him for you.' "'Fine,' she said, nodding. "'I believe you. "'He's good. "'I'd never know, never even suspect, if I hadn't been friends since second grade with Alice Steady, who owns the Green Orchid on Orlando. "'What's the name of, of the guy you're dating again?' "'Gareth.' Uh-huh, she says. Guess he came in, blue Volvo, used a credit card to buy a hundred bucks worth of flowers. Said no to Alice's offer of free delivery. And that was sneaky, see? No delivery ad- address, no evidence, right? And I know the flowers weren't for himself, because Alice said he asked for one of those little message cards. And from the look on your face, they weren't for you either. Alice is one of those romantic types. Says no man buys a hundred bucks worth of Barbaresco Orientals for someone he isn't madly in love with. Roses? Sure, every cheap piece of ass gets roses. But not Barbaresco Orientals. I'll be the first to admit I was upset. I'm not one of those people who pretends they never cared in the first place. But then he started not returning my calls, sweeping me under the rug like I'm crumbs or something. Not that I care. I'm seeing someone else now. An optometrist. Divorced. His first wife, I guess, was a real clinker. Gareth can do whatever he wants with himself. She fell silent. Not out of exhaustion or reflection, but because her eyes had again snagged on the butterflies in front of her. He really loves those things, she said. I followed her gaze to the wall. Not really. No? He barely looks at them. I actually saw the thought, the light bulb, illuminating her head as if she were a comic book character. She moved quickly, but so did I. I stood in front of them and hastily said something about receiving the flowers myself. Dad talks about you all the time, I cried rather pathetically, but she didn't hear me. A garish flush bleeding into the back of her neck, she yanked open Dad's desk drawers and hurled every one of his legal pads—he organized them by university and date—into the air. They flew around the room like giant, scared canaries. I guess she found what she was looking for—a steel ruler, which Dad used for orderly cross-comparison diagrams in his lecture notes— and to my shock, she brutally shoved me aside and tried to stab it through the glass of one of the Rikers cases. The ruler, silver aluminum, would have no part of it, however, so with an infuriated fucking A, she threw it to the floor and tried punching one of the boxes with her bare fist, and then with her elbow, and when that didn't work, she scratched the glass with her nails as if she were some lunatic scraping the silver skin off a lottery ticket. Still thwarted, she turned, her eyes swerving around Dad's desk until they stopped on the green lamp, a parting gift from the agreeable dean at the University of Arkansas at Wilsonville. She seized it, jerking the cord out of the wall, and raised it over her head. She used the base, solid brass, to shatter the glass of the first case. At this point I ran at her again, lurching at her shoulders, also shouting, "'Please!' but I was too weak and, I suppose, too stunned by it all to be effective. She pushed me again, elbowing me right in the jaw, so my neck twisted to the side and I fell down. Glass rained everywhere, all over Dad's desk, the rug, my feet and hands, all over her, too. Tiny shards glittered in her hair and stuck to her thick white tights, trembling like beads of water. She couldn't remove the cases from the wall—dad used special screws to hang them—but she ripped through the pieces of mounting paper and tore the brown cardboard backing from the frames, ripping every butterfly and moth from their pins, squashing their wings so they became colored confetti, which, with eyes wide, Her face creased like a wad of paper smoothed out. She tossed around the room, making something of a sacrament out of it, like a priest gone mad with holy water. At one point, with a muffled growl, she actually bit into one and resembled for a horrifying and faintly surreal moment a massive orange tabby eating a blackbird. In the most peculiar of instances, one is struck by the most peculiar of thoughts— and, in this case, as Eva bit into the wing of the night butterfly, tegetus echo, I remembered the occasion when Dad and I were driving from Louisiana to Arkansas when it was ninety degrees, and the air conditioning was broken, and we were memorizing a Wallace Stevens poem, one of Dad's favorites, Thirteen ways of looking at a Blackbird." Among twenty snowy mountains, the only thing moving was the eye of the blackbird, Dad explained to the highway. When she stopped, she finally stood still, astonished herself by what she'd just done. There was the utterest of all utter silences, reserved, I imagined, for the aftermath of massacres and storms. You could probably hear the rustle of the moon if you concentrated. The earth, too— its whoosh as it whirled around the sun at eighteen-point-five miles per second. Eva then began to shiver an apology in a trembling voice that sounded as if it were being tickled. She cried a little, too, a disquieting, low-pitched, seeping sound. I can't be sure of her crying, actually. I, too, had been hauled into a state of disorientation under which I could only repeat to myself— This did not actually happen, as I gazed at the surrounding debris—in particular at the top of my right foot, my yellow sock, on which rested a brown and furry torso of some moth—the bent-wing ghost moth, perhaps, slightly crooked, as if it were a bit of pipe cleaner. Eva then put the lamp down on Dad's desk, tenderly, the way one handles a baby and, avoiding my eyes, walked past me up the stairs. After a moment, I heard the front door slam and the sputter of her car as she drove away. To subscribe to The Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit www.kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED. (laughs)